Hi, my name is Claire and I'm the mother of three teenagers with FESD. I'm Jessica, a PhD researcher specialising in educational interventions for children with FASD. And together we are the hosts of Spotlight on FASD, the UK's first podcast dedicated to shining a spotlight on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. FASD is a condition caused by prenatal alcohol exposure that affects hundreds of thousands of children across the UK. And we're here to bring these conversations out of the shadows and make sure that no one living with FASD feels alone. Hi everyone and welcome back to the next episode of Spotlight on FASD. Um, this week we are continuing with our little mini-series with Jared Brown who has kindly um, organised his time to talk with us across the pond um, and we're joined by Ivy as well. We're not even going to try and hide the fact that uh, our little baby is with us today but this is real life, this is this is parenthood. Um, and I'm sure that you would all agree that we'd rather we got the message out and we got our information out to you than not. Um, so I'm sure nobody minds the fact that um, she's joining us today. Um, so today we are going to pick Jared's brains about everything that he knows and that he has observed and the information he has gathered around um, FASD and what we know about FASD and fire setting. So I'll um, I'll let you start, Jared. Yeah, you bet. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me back on your program. We don't know a lot about FASD and fire setting per se. There have never, far as I am aware, there's never been an empirical-based study that has investigated fire setting within the context of FASD. Now, however, I've written a handful of shorter articles with some professionals and what we do know about it really comes from caregiver observation, a few popular media accounts, professional observations. And again, we don't know how often it happens, but we do know it happens from time to time because this is definitely something that I hear enough from caregivers around the country that their child or adult has engaged in some sort of fire setting activity. Now, it, is it done with intent to harm? In most cases, not necessarily. Um, maybe it's related to fascination, curiosity. In some cases, it could be done deliberately, but there's a lot of factors we need to take into account. So I definitely want to start out with just a broad spectrum overview for your audience, kind of about fire setting in general. So there's unintentional types of fire setting. There's intentional types. It's important to consider the fact that if it's intentional or unintentional, it can still carry significant consequences for that individual, for their family, for the community. So just because it's not intentional, unintentional fire setting based on like curiosity can really get away from someone quite quickly. So for example, if someone with FASD looks at a match, they may not have that concept of how this little match can then grow so quickly and actually burn down a house. Mm -hmm. So that cause and effect, we really need to take into account. Lacking kind of the understanding of my actions right now and what could happen a minute from now, two minutes, a month from now. So we really want to take that into account. Fire is I, it is a really normal part of human life. I mean, we're exposed to fire in some capacity 
all the time. Maybe it's a bonfire, birthday candles, holiday celebrations, religious ceremonies, watching a television show, barbecues, fireworks, weddings, funerals, social media. So people are exposed to various forms of fire directly or indirectly at many points in their life, if not on a semi-regular basis. And when we talk about fire too, I think it's important to understand at least some of the myths that are out there. And this isn't necessarily just for people that FASD, just common myths that are out there. And I do a lot of work in this area, not just with FASD, but other populations. I do a lot of consulting and training, working with other professionals about really complex cases involving youth who set fires. One of the big myths that are out there, especially if a youth is engaging in repetitive types of fire setting, is that this is a normal phase. It is not a normal phase for a kid to really have a fascination and engage in repetitive types of fire setting. Now it's normal for a, a child or an adult to be interested in maybe starting a bonfire, but if someone's starting to perseverate about it or ruminate or really have fascinations about fire, that is not a normal thing. So we really wanna take that serious. What happens if a child or an adult starts a small fire? This is a myth in some cases where it was just a small fire, it wasn't a big deal. Maybe it was a small fire because the adults, the caregivers, the police responded quickly and put it out so it didn't become a big fire. So we wanna take into account some of these basic myths. Now, I think when we look at this through like a criminal justice lens, cases at least people I've consulted with is that fire setting behavior always equals like conduct disorder and that's not the case fire setting equals animal abuse that is not the case fire setting equals bedwetting that is not the case those are a lot of myths that are out there but it is very important for us to understand this topic because it does have significant implications for your audience, if they want to understand at least some of the different search terms that are out there, you could go online and type in like accidental fire setting, juvenile fire setting, misuse of fire, fire experimentation, troubled fire setting. There's a lot of different terms out there that overlap with one another. And I think one other important distinction for your audience is the fact that juvenile fire setting is not necessarily arson. That is a big, big component of this for most people to, to be aware of. Arson, most people don't turn into arsonists. Most fire setting, even problematic fire setting in juveniles, they don't typically grow up to be adult arsonists. So I don't want people to think if someone lit a fire one time or two times, that means they're going to be an arson. Arsonists, there's a lot of other complexities with that that we can dig into if you'd like. But if you guys have any specific questions about any of these things I've covered so far, please let me know. I can go a lot deeper into it before we dig specifically into kind of what is known about FASD and fire setting. I think I've, I've probably got like a little an observation as a, as a mother and as a caregiver that I've experienced this on a, a very, luckily, a very small scale. Um, and the way that I always explained it to myself or, or probably stopped fear really getting a hold of me about it was a lot of times with FASD, um, certainly FASD and trauma, we kind of think to toddler in, in behaviours. Um, and I 
would often see as as my boys were growing up that they had the the same kind of fascination with fire that a toddler would have but they had the means and the you know the height to reach a cupboard where a toddler couldn't reach the motor skills to click a fire light there that a toddler couldn't do so it's this toddler fascination coupled with the means to be able to physically do it as well um and then when you link that to the, the the trouble with linking cause and effect and impulsivity control before you know it somebody has thought it was a clever idea to use the the lighter that I use for my scented candles to light a, an empty mentos wrapper in a bedroom on a pvc windowsill um just to see how fast it would burn um with with zero intention of lighting a fire um because i think something that that i've always been you know i have always found that with mine when they are not obsessed with something but when they're consumed by something if you try and keep them away from it that's just a road to disaster. So I give them as much access to it as I possibly can. So mine have grown up with a big allotment where they've been able to have fires as big as they wanted to and throw things on and see what would happen and um, kind of experiment a little bit um, with it. But they still, I feel that it's difficult for them to link say lighting light a bonfire outside with, with rubbish on an allotment, I, I think that certainly with my boys, they don't see that fire as the same kind of thing that they are lighting a sweet wrapper in the house sneakily to see how fast it would burn or they don't link those two together. They don't link that huge big fire. That's actually, yeah, that's a bit scary. They don't understand that within a, a third of a second, the bedroom curtains could be up and and their whole bedroom would look like that bonfire um and it's those so boundaries think, isn't it like mm-hmm. when is it okay to mm-hmm. set fires when what what can we set fire to and you you know all of those yeah. restrictions. Uh, like, like experiment. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and def- there's something fascinating i mean i think this would go for most people to be honest there is um something quite fascinating about setting fire to something such as that sweet wrapper and watching the state change of it and watch how how they curl up and melt and things and like I'm quite intrigued to know how long it took for the Mentos wrapper to to melt away um and you know having the ability to do that as you said you know your boys can can get that fire later and yeah when they're smaller they couldn't do any of that and it's it's things like that that you don't you don't think about those things and um, n- never any intent. But, you know, I, I was before we started recording, I was talking about went through a little phase where I would get up on a morning and there would be a, it was like a science lesson, really. There would be a mixture of different materials in different stages of burned crispness in my kitchen sink. But there would be water, there would be some kind of floating, like a, a cereal bowl or something. And it was this, you know, he was going through a phase of he was actively hunting out all the different things and see how they would melt or shrink or burn, would smoke come off them. But this was happening at, say, maybe three in the morning, and I hadn't even heard him go downstairs to do that. <laughs> so it, it it is terrifying, but I think it's part of... Um, 
I think what I would like us to get across here is, yes, it's something that that we know is part and parcel of um, this kind of brain condition, definitely. And, and we spoke that there's no real research being done yet. It's the same for most aspects of FASD. But every caregiver I have spoken to who has kids of a certain age, we've, we've, we've touched on it and we've talked about it. So we know enough between us all that there is something there underlying. When we think of the, okay, so what, what we do know comes again from caregivers, professionals, popular media accounts. So what I did with some of my other colleagues, we, we've written a handful of articles that have just kind of examined what common variables themes emerge from just talking to lots of caregivers, lots of professionals. And some of these, again, they're not empirical based, they haven't been researched, but these are common themes that have come up from these informal interviews. A big variable is the absence of adequate um, parental care or supervision. That was a consistent theme that's come up on a lot of the cases where someone with FASD has started a fire. Attention seeking was another variable that came up where they were maybe trying to get the attention of someone to get them to like them. They didn't understand that that was not a good way to get attention. Comprehension issues was common that came up. So a lot of the caregivers we spoke to or professionals thought that comprehension deficits, again, not understanding that cause and effect, was a part of it. Curiosity. A lot of these things I'm talking about right now are quite common among people who set fires in general, not just people with FASD. Looking at their decision-making and problem-solving deficits were definitely a variable. Impulsivity, self-control, lack of inhibition, that inhibition relates to executive function. It's our internal parking brake. So not being able to pause and reflect and really understand what my actions may lead to. Some folks we talked to also thought that traumatic childhood experiences was a variable in some cases. So looking at trauma histories, and we know from the general fire setting literature that trauma histories are actually quite more common among youth who set fires than not. Looking at their level of gullibility and naivete and just being talked into doing things that may not have their best intentions in mind by other peers, classmates. Learning problems, learning disabilities was a factor in some cases, some of the caregivers believed too. In a few cases, some caregivers mentioned that obsessional tendencies could have been a factor. They thought maybe in some cases that child or adult was really obsessing about fires. Now, most people aren't obsessing about fires, so I don't want people to worry about that, but in some cases, they may. So it's important in those cases, obviously, to work with a, a qualified professional to deal with whatever underlying issues going on there. What about poor behavioral or family modeling or functioning? Was that child or adult growing up in a home watching caregivers, parents, some other relative misuse fires? And we know people with FASD are, have a tendency to mimic the actions of other people. So where they were just acting out things they saw from other people. So the misuse of fire can be modeled inappropriately within that caregiving system. 
co-occurring mental health issues as well. Was there any untreated mental health issues going on or unresolved anger? So those were just a few of the variables that came up when just talking to caregivers and professionals who have definitely seen at least some people with FASD engage in fire setting behaviors. So I think my my question would be, um, and I don't know, you, you might not have the answer to this at all, but given everything that we know, because I think every all of those variables that you've just touched on, it, m- most people with FASD have got a mixture of all of those variables going on if not all of them a lot of them it would be it would be the exception to the rule if they didn't so how do we find a way to explain the dangers of fire in a way that they can understand because we know that um it's so difficult to try and explain different concepts for them to understand that, that in the future that tiny little thing will make this happen. So do you have any pointers in that direction or? Well, I think being aware again of their emotional and social age, regardless of what intervention you're teaching or any skill, how old are they emotionally and developmentally rather than the chronological age? I think it's imperative to have a trauma-informed mindset. It is imperative to understand executive function in whatever skill you're teaching, looking through an executive functioning lens as well, and doing it in a concrete, repetitious manner that I would say would be rooted in psychiatric rehabilitative approaches. So those would be more approaches that are focused on role-playing, modeling, coaching, teaching, making things visual, practicing it in different settings, getting caregivers involved so everyone's modeling the same behavior. Making sure you're working with a professional who understands FASD first and foremost. So let's say if you refer someone to a fire specialist and they're trying to teach that child or adult fire safety skills and the fire specialist is an expert in fire, but they have absolutely no expertise in FASD, that's really problematic. So it's important to have both. And in my experience, most fire professionals, fire prevention specialists don't have an expertise in FASD. So maybe it is partnering with a professional who understands FASD and working hand in hand or hiring a consultant to help modify the approach. I think one thing we can do is look at the autism literature. There is some studies related to autism and fire setting. Looking at some of the literature on ADHD and fire setting intellectual and developmental disabilities. There is research on those topics in fire setting. Now, again, they're not a, they're not FASD per se, but there is some traits that overlap. When we think about assessment or screening as well, this there's a lot of articles that talk about assessment and screening for youth fire setting, but not through an FASD lens. And anytime someone's doing a screening or an assessment for fire setting, Regardless of the population, I think it's important to look at were there any antisocial behaviors, attitudes, histories attached to the fire setting? Was the fire setting done to conceal a crime, to commit a crime? What was the method in which the fire was started, the motive, the frequency? Was there a specific target? Was it accidental? Was it curiosity-based? Was it revenge-based? What was going on in that family system? 
What kind of social supports do they have? What's their developmental level like? If you dig into all of those topics, I think that's going to help. But again, it's not going to be 100% that captures all the FASD related variables. But maybe it's a referral to an FASD specialist to do a comprehensive evaluation through the FASD lens. Then they work with the fire department or the fire service as a team. And best practices show working through a multidisciplinary team, I think is the best way possible moving forward. And if appropriate and possible, engaging the caregiver, the support system, so they're learning about these topics as well. Education is so key, I think, for these topics when we're talking about FASD and fire setting. Yeah, I think that's really, really important with FASD in particular, um, how you mentioned about um, understanding all of those topics and the whole scenario. So particularly when we're, we're considering criminal justice, bringing in an FASD um, professional alongside anybody else who's involved to start really picking apart, you know, um, yes, the child, young person with FASD um, set this fire and, and a dangerous event um, has occurred and there was other other people there with them. Who were those people? You know, what, is this the vulnerable child? Were they vulnerable? You know, what all those factors to really piece it together because that really, really tells the story and I think that's something really important um, because as we know, when we've spoken about criminal justice in the past, it's it's a very um, slippery slope, downward spiral that can um, escalate very, very quickly once somebody's in that system. And if, if there is no one person who understands that FASD there to, to jump in and say, actually, yes, they set the fire, but let's consider all of this. And, and then, you know, on the other hand, using that to educate, because um, Claire, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but in, in my personal experience, I've met a lot of um, a lot of the children and young people with FASD who I've met have quite a fascination with the emergency services and the attention that is received through that response, that the, the response time, um, the fact that they come with, you know, all the noise, the lights, the sirens, and it's a big event, mm -hmm. the emergency services appear. So you know, was the fire set simply for the reaction? Yeah, and is it known to them that that attention from the emergency services will solve the problem? So even if they know on some level that what they're doing is dangerous, the people that are coming to stop it. Yeah, so it's not going to get out of hand because someone's going to come and fix it. I think yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm elated to say that I've never experienced that fascination with emergency services with my three, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think that, you know, I know that, you know, we, like we said at the beginning, we want we wanted to talk about this because we know it's a common, it's, it's a common thread that runs through all of our lives in the world of FASD. Um, we don't, and we want to talk about it, not in a way to, to scare people or panic people of you're taking care of a child with FASD, your house is going to be on fire. The total opposite, really, we want to just we want to talk about it because a lot of people are maybe a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit scared to talk about it. And I think the the, the key, because we talk about a, a multidisciplinary approach and and I know, Jared, there'll be so many families in the UK listening to this. I think we would just love one service involved or one professional involved, let alone multidisciplinary. So, to you know, from someone who has has dealt with these issues on a smaller scale 
it's like you said earlier, um, you know, so there are now there are no matches in my house at all and they haven't been for a long time. The 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 firelighters are completely hidden. Only I know where they are. And my children are 14, 15, and 16. And you've you've got to just lose the mindset of, well, I've got teenagers in the house now, so that's, that's absolutely fine. It's not when it comes to and, and so a lot of it is down to you. You can have a huge amount of control over this because if something is there that it's you know it, it is just like an over inquisitive toddler and they are gonna pick it up and want to use it so it's all about you having or not leaving that in their in their line of vision really um and that has a huge huge impact on on what kind of situations it can get into um so i think that that is the easiest and i know i've spoken to a lot of people who and a lot of people have the mindset of thinking well I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to hide that because they should know that it's wrong to do that. And we've said it once, I've said it a million times. Unfortunately, a lot of aspects, not all aspects, but a lot of aspects of FASD are spectacularly inconvenient. And that's just the way it is. And we have to accept it. And we have to make the adjustments. Otherwise, um, you know, we, we are making life more difficult the people that we love if we don't make those adjustments and that's it they're very convenient to life as as we know it as soon as you release that Mm -hmm. you you release that and flip it all on its head everything gets easier everything gets easier yeah um i think i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add jerris i think yeah you bring up a good point i mean it's so important to monitor fact check verify safety just because, again, it's a teenager body, a brain maybe of a child, it, it's so important. And it's not just monitoring the ignition devices and any matches, lighters, and locking them up and keeping them safe and secure, but really also monitoring what that individual watches on TV, social media, because they could be exposed to something really problematic on there in terms of fire. And then try to act that out in day-to-day life. There are plenty of cases, not just for people that FSD, they they saw a video on YouTube or something, someone lighting a fire and they think this is a great idea. I should act this out and film it too. There's been cases where people have gotten hurt or even worse. So we really need to monitor really their level of gullibility, naivete and suggestibility around what they're watching, what they're listening to who they're exposed to in terms of peer groups. Because again, they're so easily talked into doing things. And unfortunately, a lot of cases talked into doing things that may not have their best intentions in mind. And in some cases could be really, really challenging, scary or problematic for that individual or his or her family. It's a big topic. I mean, we just scratched the surface with just a few things. If we ever want to do a part two or go a lot deeper, this is a lot to cover. But if there's anything else you want me to cover for your audience you think might be helpful today, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. No, I think we've, I think we've, um, we wanted to touch on it. We wanted to acknowledge that it was there, that it was something that we're all aware of, that was something that we didn't want to hide from. Um, you know, I think we probably will come back um, and go into things a little bit, a little bit more extensively. But for now, I think that was that was really helpful that we've we've covered that and we've um, acknowledged that it happens. Um, 
and I hope have taken away a little bit of the the sinister element of it or the the fear element. Um, obviously, it's all fire is terrifying, but um, I'm mesmerised by it. I'm mesmerised by watching something burn. So you, you totally you, you totally get it. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, Absolutely. And um, we look forward to our next episode with you in our little mini series. So thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you to both of you.